A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey guys, welcome to Giggly Squad, a place where we make fun of everything, but most importantly, ourselves. I'm Paige DeSorbo. I'm Hannah Burner. Welcome to the squad. Giggly Squad started on Summer House when we were giggling during an inappropriate time. But of course, we can't be managed. So we decided to start this podcast to continue giggling. We will make fun of pop culture news. We're watching. Fashion trends. Pep talks where we give advice. Mental health moments. And games and guests. Listen to Giggly Squad on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hello and welcome. I'm Sam Delaney, and this is the Reset, a mental health podcast without all the bollocks. This week, I welcome my first ever female guest onto the pod, the author and broadcaster and recovering addict, Melissa Rice. Now, the reason I've only had men in the past is the main point of the reset is to try to encourage specifically men to open up more about their problems and their mental health. Of course, it's not like only men have mental health problems, but the stats show that they are less willing and able to talk honestly about what is going on in their heads. Well, anyway, I invited Melissa to be the first female guest because she's just so eloquent, honest and smart in the way she talks about mental health, about addiction and just coping with the everyday shit that life throws at all of us. So her gender really isn't relevant. I think she talks in a language we can all relate to. That's one of the reasons why her brilliant BBC podcast, Hooked, The Unexpected Addicts, attracted such a big audience and won awards too. If you haven't ever listened to it, I can highly recommend now Melissa's written a book too about her story called Sobering, Lessons Learned the Hard Way on Drinking, Thinking and Quitting. It's great and another strong recommend from me. Anyway, this interview is brilliant, I think. I mean, it's not really an interview, to be honest. I hardly said a word because Melissa is so articulate and has so much value in her words that I was just spellbound and for once managed to keep my mouth shut. Melissa Rice, welcome to The Reset. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. Um, a lot of people will be familiar, Melissa, with your wonderful podcast and oh. your book, Sobering, which is really great. And I oh, want to talk about you. that and a bit more about the process of writing that later. But for those people who haven't um, yet engaged in either of those wonderful things, um, can you tell us a little bit about your story? Yeah, of course. So my name is Melissa and I'm an alcoholic. I'm just so used to saying, hi, my name is Melissa, I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> um, and my story, it ain't special. It ain't different. It's a, a story that the thousands of people up and down the country and thousands of families are, are sadly uh, familiar with. So my story, born and raised in Liverpool, shock. Um, <laughs> very working class background. I don't like the word normal. We know normal is not a great word, but I just had a normal childhood, normal everything. 
um, come from a, a, a very um, loving family, very supportive family. But growing up, what I can say, looking back with me recovery goggles on, as we do when we're in recovery, we look back for the answers and unpick and then put back together. I can see now that I had a, a lot of um, discomfort inside me, that disease that we're so familiar with talking about in, in recovery. And uh, there was a lot of uncertainty when I was growing up. Um, and yeah, I just always had this nut in the gut um, and I just never felt quite right. I never felt like I really fitted in. I was a chronic people pleaser from an early age uh, and my way of coping was to put on a show. So from an outsider looking in, this kid had no issues at all because I was a bit of a jazz hands kid was always able to crack a joke. And, and that was my defence. You know, I had a, a quick wit and a sharp tongue for a young kid and, and I used that. And that was kind of like a tool for survival because I never wanted anybody to know the, the real me because I think I always had these core beliefs that I'm not good enough. Um, I don't know if I can swear. Can I swear? Of course you can. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not good enough. I'm a... I'm a piece of shit. I'm not worth it. I'm not worth it. So I had all of these um, core beliefs that meant me self-worth was on the floor and my self-esteem. And, and that progressed um, from childhood into teens. And, and my anxiety and uncomfortable um, feelings started to present themselves physically, you know, I, and, and I still do it to this day. Like I can pull me, the hairs out in the back of my head with no real thought or motive as to why I'm doing it. As a teen, there was there was episodes of self harm, and uh, I never talked about it. You know, this was you got to think like no one really spoke about anxiety in kids in in the nineties. You know, if you were crying all the time, you were being a pain in the arse, or if you were pulling your hair out, you were just told to stop that. There was no real space for. So tell me what's going on for you. <laughs> you know, that just wasn't a thing. So um, I just didn't talk about it and I didn't know how to. I was never good at communicating my feelings because in my head, if I told someone I was really feeling, they'd walk away and leave me. And that's always been a thing for me. You know, if I tell anybody what's really going on, um, you know, I'm a burden. I don't want to be a burden. They'll get up and leave. Um, and then you get to sixth form in the UK and you go to the pub and the rest is history. <laughs> no, so I, I get to the sixth form. I'd gone from being a really academic because I was a people pleaser. I never wanted to let people down. I was really studious, and, you know. And as soon as I got to sixth form and there was booze, recreational drugs, um, night and Liverpool is a cracking night out, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'd arrived. And, um, and yeah, and, and, you know, it was never, I never really drank for confidence. And I know that's really common for people who are drank to be confident. I had that down because that was, that was part of my persona. I could appear, present to be confident. But what I did do was, was drink to escape myself. Um, a drink just took me or recreational drugs just took me to a place. And I had a break from my own shit for a few hours and um, and there was a few other life events um, that you we would now call trauma, you know, that were quite traumatic in the late teens that really 
it made my mental health take a nosedive. Then there was a, I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease in my very early 20s. And, and all of these big life things that were out of my control were going on and I weren't talking about them and because I didn't know how to. So I internalised them, pretended everything was fine, couldn't face the, the, the reality. So I made an alternate one. And then I'm not surprised that my drinking uh, escalated. Uh, and, you know, I was pretty successful. I was a primary school teacher, could you believe? Could you believe I managed? And, and that's the thing about anybody in, in active addiction. We are a resourceful lot. And I was always one of them people who pulled stuff out the bag. And in that period of being a primary school teacher, I was the happiest and felt the most fulfilled. But also I was at me, I, I was I was at me most um, fragile mentally and the wheels came off pretty quick. Um, walked away from that in the end, uh, rightly so. I wasn't fit, fit, fit for it, but throughout that period, the fear and the shame of people finding out that, I, that first of all, that I was struggling with my mental health, you know, that I was having suicidal thoughts and that I wasn't able to cope. That was bad enough, but the, the fear of anybody knowing that I was using drink to cope um, kept me sick for a long time and stopped stopped me from asking for help because I did not know who or what an alcoholic was. My understanding of what an alcoholic was was Phil Mitchell and Peter Barlow from the soaps. I didn't look yeah. like them. I did not look like either of them two men. Mm. Um, and my other understanding of an alcoholic was sadly, you know, the, the very archaic, outdated stereotype of the park drinker. And I didn't drink like them. So clearly I'm not an alcoholic. Mm. I'm going through something. So I remember um, the drinking, with, as I said, it was escalating. And it, it you know, I, I ended up alcohol dependent. I've had four community detoxes, which are absolutely grim. And I, anyone who's listening, I hope to God, you, know, you, you never have to have one, but if you have, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And, uh, and I still wouldn't accept that I was an alcoholic. I don't know what needed to happen. I was in so much denial and I don't know what needed to happen for me to accept that I needed help, professional help and to, to seek support and say the words, I'm an alcoholic. Um, but the, 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 as I said, the shame kept me so, so ill and I was so afraid and um, I didn't want to be judged. I didn't want my family to be judged because in my head, I don't want them to think that my mum's raised me this way. And, yeah. and I had all of this guilt and shame as we do. And the more guilt and the more shame I felt, the more I drank. And the more I drank, the more guilt and shame I had. And I, and I couldn't get out. And um, when we did try and access support, because it was pretty clear that I was a very vulnerable young woman, and who couldn't stop drinking. I was alcohol dependent. You know, we're talking significant volumes of, of, of vodka. Um, and it was a real battle to get into residential treatment. You know, I was denied public funds because on paper, why do I need public funding? It's so limited anyway. I lived at home. I just left primary school teacher. I hadn't been in this service. I hadn't. I didn't need an adult social worker. So there was a lot of things against me. And and in that period, um, I'd been at A and E at the crisis team. Uh, things got that bad, and and um, my mum heard 
a phrase or my mum was told and I come from a really, really kind place and a, a place of, I don't know what else to tell you, but my mum was told, you know, if, if you let her get picked up by the police, you can get a section that way. Wow. And when my mum heard that, the, my mum is, I idolised my mum and um, she was she was my protector. When we look back, obviously, this, she, she should have technically walked away, uh, but she couldn't. You know, she was watching her daughter slowly die. So the thought of her putting me out on the streets to be picked up by the police was just, she couldn't do that. So then she kept me in the house. So I was in a lockdown before we all knew what lockdown was. <laughs> Um, and that was that was really, uh, really, really painful for every single person involved. You know, my family was just as sick as I was. They just weren't drunk. Um, and, you know, I do believe addiction is a family disease. And, and I was ju- it just rippled out. It just ripped through the family. Um, but again, now we were, we didn't want anybody to know. So it was kind of like our immediate family secret. And I'm just like trapped in this house. And uh, yeah, it just was getting worse and worse. And and um, my last drink um, was the 24th of August, uh, 2017. And um, that I broke out the house, shimmied out the window. And, you know, I, I just knew it had all gotten too far, too dark. And... I still, and I couldn't deal with that. So I, I drank on that. And when I was, I ended up in hospital. And um, before I could start the final detox, I had to wean down from the drink. Um, and I just remember not wanting to drink because I was like, I'm done, I'm done. And then it's like this, this you've got to drink because if you don't have a drink, you'll have a fit, but internally and mentally, you know, you know, you're done. So like my final drink, uh, which I've spoken about, you know, is, is my mum pouring me and then her crying, me crying. And uh, I just remember just breaking down and just and the doctors and, had told her to do that, hadn't they? Oh god, yeah, 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 you have to. And that yeah. and that's that's the work that I've done since then, like the amount of people who have no idea that an alcohol withdrawal can kill a human being. Yeah. I didn't know that. You don't put that on the side of the bottle, do they? Like I didn't know if, if you drank a, a certain level over a, you know a certain period of time and you just stop thinking, no, I, I'm done, I've had enough. If you just stop, you could die. Now, you know. So she had to do that. So it was almost like medicine, if you will. Um, and yeah, and then she said, you know, it's going to be okay. And, and, and I believed her. And, and after that period, small changes had been made and we'd made some calls and we'd made progress. And I was supported by an amazing service in Liverpool called The Brink, uh, which is run by Action on Addiction. And, and they held me mum and I, and, and I was able to get a, a charity bursary to go to Cloud's house in Wiltshire. Uh, and I wasn't able to start that until the 10th of October. So ironically, from the 24th of August to the 10th of October, I put myself, I locked myself in. Wow. Even though I was, as I just said to us, I said to my mum, I said, I don't trust myself outside the house. And even though small changes were being made, I could look people in the eye because for the past, I don't know how long, every, every day was just 24 hours of tears or I was knocked out. 
I could look people in the eye. I was making people cups of tea. I was, I was getting up, washed and dressed. I hadn't been doing that. So I knew that there'd been a shift in me and there was, there was a fight in me. I don't know where that fight came from, but it was just like I'd said, I could see everything clearly and I was done. So I locked myself in until the 10th of October and I even earned my key privileges back somewhere in September. And, and, I just said, no, I don't trust myself. I just want to get there. And I got to treatment and all my, all my mates now, they, they all laugh because at the time they were like, she don't need to be here. She's six weeks sober. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but my part of my story is I could get a few weeks of sobriety under my belt. And because I didn't have, I didn't know what I was suffering with, how to manage it and all of this, I'd just be back to square one. So, I, I you know, I know everybody, um, is different but I, for me I think it was better because my you know the way that my body was responding to the detoxes I was written off for six weeks so I wouldn't have got the treatment for this the head yeah um so going in for a, a you know a few weeks sober I think did me the the, the world of good and I responded really well to it and um, it was a 12-step treatment center now I did try AA and I remember my mum saying is this where you want to end up with all of these, <laughs> and used it as a bit of a deterrent at one point. And, um, and, and lo and behold, it's, it's where I choose to be now, you know. I, I choose choose to be in AA um, and because I've responded to it. And I think throughout my life, I was always looking for something, a way to live my life. I was always searching for that sense of belonging, and, and it just so happens that I found that in AA. And then uh, from, from Cloud's house, I went on to... Um, another treatment centre in Camden. Um, and I, that's when I was introduced to the Amy Winehouse Foundation. Because you've got to remember, I'm from a really working class background. We don't just have spare £10,000 lying around to send, yeah. to send me to rehab. So, you know, I had two lottery wins. The first one from Action on Addiction and the second one from the Amy Winehouse Foundation who funded me to go to a second stage rehab. And I did, um, did more, you know, it spent more weeks there. And then after that, I had to make a decision. Do I go back to Liverpool, to my family? And I'm, you know, I am so <laughs> obsessed with my mum and my family. Some would say it's codependency. <laughs> so it's like, would I, do I go back? And they haven't had time to heal. I haven't learned enough. And I knew I would have just went straight back into you know, the the dependent child and my mum would have been the care, caregiver role. And I thought, I can't do that. I've done that my whole life. Or do I put me recovery first? So I just listened to those around me and just put my faith in recovery. Um, and, I, you know, looking back, that was, I look back and think, oh my God, you moved to London, newly sober, you know, but yeah, I did it, and, and I moved to the Amy Winehouse Recovery House called Amy's Place, which is like a female-only building that has support if you need support. But it's like self-contained flat, so it's not really like a treatment element to it. Right. Um, and it was there that I kind of learned how to live life sober, and I just start. So, sorry, um, learned how to live life sober, and. Um, to really sit and search and think right okay what do you want to do because teaching you ended up being out, and I, I just wanted to move forward and and that's kind of when I was like you, you do when you're in early recovery don't you you, you find what 
they because addiction bankrupts us and it robs our our dreams our hopes our talents our ambition it just takes everything away i think recovery gives you an opportunity to sit down and gives you enough tools to think do you know what i'm going to try that why not what's the worst that could happen I'm, you know i can just give it a try so i started writing again and I'd always thought that writing would be something that I'd just tell the grandkids kids when I'm dying. Like, that was my biggest regret, you know, mm. um, that and studying politics. And um, anyway, so I just started writing again, and it was a key worker at Amy's place, and she said, oh, you know, um, there's a competition going there on BBC Five Live, the Rachel Bland New Podcast Award. Um, they're looking for a new community podcast, a community who are on uh, represented and they want to, or people who want to change the narrative. And I read the brief and I was like, Hey, that's, that's addiction and recovery there. Um, And yeah, so I just took it up to me little flat. And by this point I was already at that crossroads, you know, do I go, do I go back to work and say, I've been traveling for a year and a bit, which I had, I'd been from Liverpool to Wiltshire to London, back mm. to travelling, and then just pretend like nothing had happened or do mm. I really embrace visible recovery. And as well, I was just, I was getting quite like passionate about if I didn't know what addiction and recovery was, how many other Melissa's are there out there who haven't got a clue what's going on and that there's a way out. So I wanted a way to kind of combine them all. So I didn't, I genuinely did not, I didn't think anything of it. I weren't working. I was on benefits. I was living in support of housing. It was a 500 word submission. And I thought, well, do you know what? You can try it and see what happens. And so I just wrote the 500 words and um, and sent it in. And it was, a, I never thought the BBC, of all, of all the institutions, I did not think the BBC would pick it up because me humour, you know, is, is quite dark. And I think the, you know, a lot of people don't know that about recovery community. We've got a wicked sense of humour, haven't we? Yeah. Because yeah. you have to, and that comes from a place mm-hmm. of acceptance. And uh, so I never thought it would get through. And then anyway, it got through the next of the first round. I thought, oh God, I, I don't know how to record anything. And then, um, the, the co-host, my co-host Jade, I met her on my first day of rehab. Now, if you were to meet us too, or if you listen to the podcast, you'll think, how are them two even mates? I'm all tears and she's no nonsense. Like it, it just shouldn't work. And when we were in rehab, right, you get nominated or you get given different roles. And to build my confidence up, the counsellors assigned me who can't, couldn't say boo to a goose or fight away out of a wet paper bag. They gave me the role of house leader. Yeah. And then they said, you need to choose your own deputy. And I chose Jay's as my deputy. And then it's like 18 months later, we're sat in a recording studio. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. But I think um, when, so anyway, lo and behold, the, the, the idea won, and you know, we, we sat, we were absolutely terrified. And why we were terrified? Because we were 
it wasn't we were both stable in our recovery but what we were scared of was was what were we going to be judged were we going to be trolls jade was a former nurse i was a former teacher um and what would people think is the time right for us to be talking and then we just throughout the whole recording and throughout this whole journey that we've been on we said if it if if was talking so openly honestly you know in the way that we talk if if this helps just one person and they don't feel alone then it's worth doing so we kind of put all that self-obsession what will people think of me and we just kind of saw the greater good and and uh, and we believed in it because there is such an entrenched stigma and uh, of addiction and and we've come on leaps and bounds with how we talk about mental health and we're all more comfortable with you know talking about anxiety and depression depression and and all of the rest of it which is amazing it's a wonderful thing but when addiction's talked about oh mustn't talk about addiction still a taboo so we wanted to kind of confront that and just show addiction and recovery in a, in a new way because it was just it's not helpful we've just been fed this diet that either the the super rich or the celebs they go to rehab yeah. or the people on the other end and actually there's a whole big band of people in in the middle of that uh, socioeconomic spectrum who were just getting left out of the conversation and it does you know addiction does, and that always we kept saying was addiction doesn't discriminate and we really just stayed true to to ourselves and to our message, and and um, yeah, we I never I completely underestimated the, the underestimated the impact that it would have, um, because as far as I was concerned, we were just two idiots talking down the <laughs> down down a mic, um, but you know it, it it made a huge impact, and um, I'm I'm just so grateful, you know, there's people now who I've, you know, who I've met up with who are now in AA and, and they're in recovery. And, and that just shows when, when you're, you're sharing honestly and when you're having these types of conversations, you know, people think, oh, my God, someone else has done that. Someone else has pissed the bed or someone, you know, yeah. and that, that's it. Like, and I think Jade and I weren't afraid of saying it as it is there was no like psycho babble and talking about my my truths and this and the journey it was just like this is what it was like the jade taking the piss out of me and and humor was a powerful and is a powerful way for people to feel connected to something and and i think people were like it was a bit a breath of fresh air to some people like like oh my god she said that and the amount of messages that I said when I I didn't do that but I did do this and we had messages from people you know professionals who who sign post patients to it we've got um parents who now understand the 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 you know their their kids and it it's just it's and and that is not to do with Jade or I, because we are, our recovery is not special or different. We're not professionals, professional for hubs, but we're not professionals, but it, we, we were just honest. Mm. And I think that's what, that's what people um, felt, you know, it was almost like our honesty gives people permission to be honest themselves. Mm. Um, so it was, it was an amazing experience. Um, 
And yes, throughout it all, we just said recovery comes first, our friendship comes second, and the rest will have to wait. Um, and I seen her last night as well, and and uh, yeah, so we're still thick as thieves. Yeah, um, but yeah, so that that was the the podcast. Well, it's an amazing story, and you tell it so powerfully. And I'm I'm blown over, and you've touched on so many things there that I feel are so important that I don't know where to start in my follow-up questions other than to say, I think one of the most powerful things, and it and it it was in it was sort of inherent in the title of your podcast, The Unexpected Addicts. I think that mm. idea where you spell out that we've got two extremes uh in our heads of what an alcoholic looks like. I sometimes mm. think, and I I think, you know, I worry that this might come across to people as as judgy, but I sometimes think that if we could just redefine what alcoholism was mm. right then we might have less of a problem because you go right back to when you were sixth form that really made me think it really made me think and I thought a lot and talked a lot like you about <laughs> my own problems and my addiction and I never went back that far until I was reading you and you bring out there talking about sixth form and I think yeah it goes it goes back when I was drinking at that age it was an un, it was a completely unnatural way to but it was just an unnatural way to drink but <laughs> yeah. because everyone was doing it yeah <laughs> you used to use alcoholic as a joke turn you'd say ha, yeah. think I'm an alcoholic now I look yeah. back and I think mate you fucking were an alcoholic but yeah, you can't, yeah. but when you're 18 or even when you're in your early 20s when you're a student you think that it's not possible because you think no I'd be pissing my pants or I'd mm. be like like you say on a sleeping on a park bench or something like that society's got a problem really mm. hasn't it in terms of what our definition of an alcoholic is and as well I think the media's got you know a, a lot of power and I think you know you only have to look at you know how headlines are when someone's got a drink there's no compassion there's absolutely no compassion because I think addiction, whether it be drugs, gambling, alcohol, any addiction, I think we're still on society still doesn't accept that it's a mental condition. And I, and I think people see it, that it's a testament of someone's character, that it makes them a bad person. And I thought that I thought that before. I went through what I went through. I think my family thought that, you know, I couldn't be an alcoholic. Um, and then you go through it and then you realise, oh, okay, and you speak to professionals. And, you know, you know, alcoholism, you know, it's categorised in this, like, encyclopedia of mental health conditions that every psychiatrist in the land uses. And um, it's known as alcohol use disorder. It is a legitimate mental health condition but we do, in society it's not it's you know the greedy manipulative robbers but you're just bad people and actually if, if, if I haven't met an alcoholic who hasn't themselves had some kind of either trauma or an experience or or a, me- or a mental health episode or condition that that they um, they haven't had and the, you know the thing with alcohol is alcohol for me was was a symptom of a much deeper problem alcohol was my solution so you take it's like when the word alcoholic or addicts used we 
we as society, and I've been guilty of it, we don't consider any other trauma that's come previous, any what we think is uh, addict. And that's, whereas actually, if you take the substance out of it and you'll see that it's much, much more than taking a drug and using a drink. I drank to cope with how I was feeling. I drank to to get through life. It was my solution. It was a coping strategy. But, you know, coping strategies are just about that, coping. Yeah, there's some people who take up exercise, but unfortunately, I weren't that type. I needed a quick fix. And I got that quick fix in alcohol because it's everywhere. It's cheap and it's normalized. Like we love drinking to cope in this country. We absolutely love it. And that's just what we're used to. But then when you tip into alcoholism, ooh, so bad. You're bad. And you're judged. Um, So, yeah, I, I think we do need to reframe and, you know, there are, I do think attitudes are are changing and we are moving to more of a place where we're comfortable to talk about this stuff. You know, I'm sat here with you talking about it now. And um, and that's probably the, a good place to start um, throughout just honest conversations. And the more people are coming out, whether, whether that be celebs or whether it's just, you know, regular primary school teachers from Liverpool, the more people are, are are talking about it, the more people are going to go, yeah, I, I need some help. But mm. it shouldn't be this dirty secret, you know, and I even think to some respect recovery is a bit of a dirty secret, mm. you know, it, and actually people in recovery, are, are, they are incredible human beings, you know, who are yeah. capable of amazing things. And and actually we, we should be putting these recovery champions and celebrating recovery because honest to god it's to to it's it, i yeah i'm never i'm never not in awe of anybody else in recovery i just think they're incredible um but yeah that's just me <laughs> i think what's very powerful about what you do melissa as well is that you are funny and I think I remember, I mean, I'm older than you, but I remember the News of the World used to do these exposés or heart-to-hearts with oh, yeah. um, celebrities who'd come out and admitted for the last five years, I have secretly been an alcoholic. But the picture that I can think of of everyone who was ever featured as having an addiction problem was they were sat usually with like the, the white, the, their brave wife. No, it'd be their brave wife. It was a celebrity. It's like their brave wife who stood by him. And they'd both look really fucking sad, right? So sad. Yeah. Because it would be like, I've I've an addict and now I've stopped using, but obviously my life is full of shame and dismay forever. And the thing is, is that the real face of a lot of addicts, when you go, people think, oh, I'm going to go to a fucking AA meeting. It'll be a load of like nutters sat around crying, right? Mm-hmm. And like you touched upon, actually... You meet people in recovery, they'll tell you the funniest fucking stories. And very yeah. often they're full of so much joy and love, yeah. you know, that you don't see. It. And I think that's one of the most important things. And it's like the way that, you know, depression and anxiety yeah. in the last 10 years has been destigmatized because mm. we've heard from people who who appear to be kind of fine. But mm. saying at the same time, I, I do have these really dark moments and it's really and we've drawn the stigma out of that. And I think the route to doing the same with addiction mm. is people speaking just like you do. 
You know, you've got a yeah. smile on your face. You're not, you're not, but, but at the same time, there's a balance, isn't it? And I think you strike it. It's like you can have a laugh about it, but at the same time, you know, oh, you're, you're not fucking belittling it or saying no, it wasn't no. serious or, or tough. And I think that's what people need to understand. This is not, your life's not over. You could argue, although this sounds a little bit, this mic to the unconverted sound a bit hippy dippy. You could argue it's sure. actually the start of your life. You know, well, getting it. better is the real start of your life. It's when you really discover how to have fun, actually to have fun and actually to feel joy and actually to feel love. Because before that, you were kind of taking shortcuts to a synthetic version of those feelings. Absolutely. And I, and I think I thought my life would be over when I stopped drinking. I, that was my genuine belief. I thought I'd never have fun again. I thought I'd never go to a concert. I'd never go to a festival. My friends wouldn't want to know me. And I thought I, my personality, my sense of humour came from drink. Mm. And that was my illness talk. And all of that was just my way of keeping drinking my life. And and as cliched as it sounds, like actually I've done more in four years and I've, I've never felt more myself than I do sat here today. Um, and that is down to recovery. But I didn't know that. Like in my head, I just, honest to God, I thought I'd just be sitting, you know, whacking a stick over me back, crying and, and repenting my sins for the less the, the rest of my life. I thought that's that's what recovery was. I thought it was, I thought not drinking was a life sentence. I'm gonna have to do this shit yeah. for the rest of my life. And I remember thinking, oh, this is what my life is: broken biscuits and church halls. Oh, yeah. what is the point in this? And actually, you do you you get a bit of time under your belt. You do your work. Uh, you take on board suggestions. Things start to improve. Some for people, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. That's okay. Everyone's on their own path. And then you start, you know, dipping your toe into the, you know, you go to the odd gig sober and you're like, hang on, this is absolutely brilliant. You go on holiday and you think, this is absolutely brilliant. And you just think to yourself, what was I doing? Why didn't I do this sooner? And actually, you know, recovery, although it is a necessity for me, because I'm, I don't don't know about yourself, but for me, and it, 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 it is a fear I've got, but it's a healthy one. I genuinely have this belief that if I have another drink, I'm going to die. Don't know whether it'd be on the day of, but I have. I know I haven't got another relapse in me, mm. um, and I hold on to that, and I hold on to my final drink and my mum pouring it, and, and, and I, I keep that alive in my head. I don't dwell on it, but it's there. Um, and yeah, I. Oh, what was I saying then? I've completely gone off. <laughs> yeah. I thought about, to my mum, and it just I, and it goes I, a bit. I guess about you know how you how you you think it's all going to be boring, broken biscuits and crying. Oh yeah, and so life uh, yes, just that's, starts that's to improve. Been, yeah, no, life starts to improve, and and although it is a necessity that I remain in recovery to 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 stay alive, I actually choose recovery. Yeah. I don't. I choose recovery. It's not a life sentence. It is a life choice. I choose to go to the church halls with the broken biscuits because I'll tell you what, I, I don't mind a biscuit and a cup of tea. No. I choose to to listen to people and who who, who are like me because at, for the for, for 29 years no one else was like me. I felt different to everyone. So I choose to, to be in recovery. I, 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 and I, and I, why would I give if if this is what the first four years of life and don't get me wrong I'm not one of them people 
right, this one, my own bugbears. I got sober, my life is perfect. No, yeah. it's not. Life life isn't perfect, and that's that's the problem. I had a problem with life. I I drank because I couldn't deal when life was was tough. That so life it recovery doesn't mean that your life's going to be perfect. Of course it's not, but it gives you enough emotional resilience and and you can feel pain, you can feel joy, and those emotions, they're real. Nothing was ever real, as you said, synthetic joy, synthetic euphoria. Actually, everything that we feel in recovery is real. And that's that that's a gift, man. And um and yeah, I, I, I do, I choose to be in recovery. It's, it's not easy all the time. And don't get me wrong, I still have me day. My recovery ain't perfect. And I, I said that throughout the podcast as well. I'm just a person who's not great at doing the things that I work well for. I wouldn't be an AA if I did the things, na- if, if naturally I did things that were good for me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. So I have to, you know, be honest about that. My recovery is not perfect, but again, if if we're talking about recovery, it is about, you know, it's progress, not perfection. Mm. You know, you can just, you, you, yeah, you've had a shit day. You haven't, you haven't connected with enough people. Maybe you haven't, you know, done your, your morning rituals or the things that, you know, are good for your recovery all in one day. Do you know what? If you go, if I go to, he- go to bed with my head on the pillow and I'm sober, it is a good day. It is a really good day because I got through it. And then we go again, as Stephen Gerrard says, we go again. <laughs> and then you just try again the next day. And and that's how I try and live my life. But um, yeah, it's it's it, recovery is hard. You know, it's not easy. You know, the the way that the best thing about re- recovery is you get your feelings back. The worst thing about recovery is you get your feelings back. <laughs> you know, um, but it you know it's. Um, it's the hardest thing I've ever done, but my God, the rewards, you know, my mum goes to sleep without a worry. Yeah. I've got a relationship with my sister. I'm an, I'm, I'm a present auntie again. I haven't missed any of his birthdays. You know, I'm now doing a job that means so, so much to me. Um, I'm, you know, in, in addiction policy which I never thought would be possible. You know, I'm sat here talking to you. I've, I've, I've got amazing friends and, and all of the rest of it. And, and it's not about, and that's the thing. It's not like, oh, look at me. I've got a podcast. Oh, look at me. I, it's not that. That stuff's irrelevant to me. It's, it's the stuff that I took for granted that I cherish most now, which is family, happiness, peace of mind. They, they're what I have to cherish at all costs because you know, I, d- I never want to go back to a place where um, I haven't got those things in my life, you know. Yeah. Melissa, your story is so inspirational. You, you speak so powerfully about it. And, <laughs> oh, so, na- and so naturally that I think, is, you know, it's, it's unsurprising that you've made such a big impact on so many people's lives. Uh, I speak to people all the time about this, but I'm feeling emotional here in the way that you articulate things because I relate it to, you know, my own experiences and also what's what's possible. So I I can't thank you enough. Your your book, Sobering, which covers all of this and so much more, is is out now. Um, Thank you. Lessons learned the hard way. Um, (laughs) It's fantastic. It's funny. It's brilliantly written. And everyone, no matter what, you know, whether you've got a problem with drink or not, to be honest, I just think reading your book 
would give people so much more insight to the world around mm. them and the experiences that other people are going through, which is something that we could all do with more of, you know. Yeah. And Thank so I, I just want to say, you know, you're an inspiration. It's, oh. incred- it's incredible what you do. And I was spellbound listening to you. So thanks so much for your time. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. And thanks for the work that you're doing. You know, it's... We- we need to keep talking and and yeah so thank you well there you go melissa rice i told you i didn't talk much i'll be honest i actually got quite emotional at times during that listening to melissa talk about her story because i could relate so strongly to so much of it i think whether you've got a problem with drink or you haven't there are wider life lessons to be learned from melissa's words for literally everyone Take a breath, sit back, reflect on your life and make sure you're doing the right things to keep yourself happy and at peace. Remember to subscribe to The Reset at samdelaney.substack.com for more podcasts and my weekly newsletter. It's free and it's great. Thanks for listening. And until next time, gang, don't let the dickheads get you down. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey guys, welcome to Giggly Squad, a place where we make fun of everything, but most importantly, ourselves. I'm Paige DeSorbo. I'm Hannah Burner. Welcome to the squad. Giggly Squad started on Summer House when we were giggling during an inappropriate time. But of course, we can't be managed. So we decided to start this podcast to continue giggling. We will make fun of pop culture news. We're watching fashion trends, pep talks where we give advice, mental health moments, and games and guests. Listen to Giggly Squad on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs> <laughs>